our wounds, the things you've allowed in our life that are part of that transformation process, that process of making us new creations out of the old and the flesh and uh, the sinful patterns, behaviors, and, and choices that we've made in the past. Things that have been done to us, things that we've done to ourselves. And we pray this morning that you would pour a balm of healing on those that hear this message today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may remember this, but on September 7th, 2019, my younger brother Keith was severely burned during an accident at a youth group bonfire in Winchester, Virginia. He sustained second and third degree burns to his torso, his arms, his hands, his neck, and his jawline. I believe he has been through five skin graft surgeries, and from the outset, the treatment evolved a daily or twice daily process called debridement, which is the removal of dead tissue, which is meant to prevent several negative things like infection and cellulitis and a number of other things that could take hold and be very negative to his progress in healing. But it also, with other inventions, aids in the regrowth of new skin, new tissue. I'm very thankful for the Lord sparing my brother's life, for the wonderful ministry of the doctors and nurses at Washington Medical Center, and that my brother has experienced a tremendous amount of healing and nearly full functionality, especially with his hands, which were severely burned through ongoing therapy and treatment. He will carry the scars of that accident, though, the rest of his life. And there's been emotional healing, too, as my brother has just embraced the fact that God has been very merciful. Scars. We all have them, don't we? Reminders of the wounds of the past, or maybe you are carrying some that are still very fresh. Woundedness, brokenness is a part of the human condition, and as such, it can crowd out the experience of healing as we remember the ways others have hurt us. The lies told about us, the gossip, the rejection, the judgment from others, the unreasonable expectations that we can never meet, the abuse, either verbal, emotional, physical, or sexual, that has been experienced, the disappointment, that broken relationship or friendship, the unreturned love, the abandonment, and yes, the loss and grief of death and many, many other intentional or unintentional wounds are a part of our lives in this broken and sinful world in which we live. Let us also not forget the self-inflicted wounds we cause through responding to the hurts and the people that cause them with anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness that keeps us off the path of healing. And whether we have the honesty to admit it or not, sometimes we turn those emotions and sinful responses against God himself. We blame God. God, why didn't you stop this or that or that person? Why did you allow me to go through such a terrible thing? I don't know if you've ever said that. I have. As much as we don't like them, scars are a good thing in the sense that they indicate wounds which have healed. Today, we want to examine the experience of woundedness, how it impacts our identity, but also how, if we understand it correctly, it is meant to transform us into people of compassion. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. 
You know that in the process of Jesus' ministry, one of the most important things he was doing with the 12 is he was preparing them for leadership. He was preparing them to be transformed, to be effective ministers in his stead when he would go back to the Father. And they're very much like us, aren't they? They were unformed, (laughs) unfit, and they needed to grow. We're going to look at this experience of hardened hearts because we see that Jesus directly addresses this issue in their life through these two scenarios we'll look at in Mark 6 and Mark chapter 8. You can understand it if you look back at their experience. They were an oppressed people. They were under the thumb of Rome. They were under the weight of heavy taxation. I guess we will find more and more about that in the coming months. They were abused. They were mistreated. They were treated as chattel for the Romans whenever they need them. They could compel them to do certain things. Any punishment was harsh, and life was hard many times. It can create a hardness and a callousness just trying to survive. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30, we see that Jesus is in this occasion. He's teaching and preaching, and people were coming. Verse 30, verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported him all that they had done, had done and taught. They had actually been sent out to minister for the first time. And he said, uh, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And it was already quite late. His disciples came up to him and began saying, the place is desolate. It's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and spend 200 days wages on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. And they reclined in the companies of hundreds and and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces and all of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. And then we go down, and there's this experience where they're in the boat, and Jesus comes walking across the water, miraculously overpowering the force of gravity and the waves. And notice verse 50, and they all saw him, they were frightened, but immediately he spoke with them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained insight, any insight, from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Turn over to Mark chapter 8. In those days, verse 1, there were great multitude, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a distance. As disciples answer him, where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread there here in this desolate place? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground and take the seven loaves. He gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And he, they ate and were satisfied. They picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. And about 4,000 were there. And he sent them away and immediately entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given in this generation. And leaving them, he embarked and went away to the other side. And they, the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than, how many? One loaf in the boat. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? You see, Jesus' response when he sees people in need is compassion. He feels the smallest and most significant and hidden hurt. And the disciples did not. They had a response of indifference at the best and hardness at the worst. Just send them away, Lord. You know, that is the problem with woundedness. Sometimes in our self protective response, we have become hardened to others' pain. They had a lack of understanding. They did not understand Jesus' true nature, number one under letter C, his true nature. His true nature was to feel and empathize with people. As a matter of fact, isn't that the very thing that drove him to lay aside his glories and his autonomous use of them? to veil them in flesh, and to come from heaven for us. What great sacrifice the compassion of Christ has poured out. They had also a lack of understanding about their mission. Jesus said pointedly in that previous passage, you give them something to eat. Jesus was not asking them to do a miracle. He was just asking them to be the attendants standing by at the ready once he did one. So often we feel that we are without resources, that we can't do the things we're called to do, that our life has been pretty tough, and, you know, where do we get the capacity to go serve other people when they're hurt and their brokenness? And we forget that Jesus is a supplier of it all. Roman numeral number two, our brokenness is our strength, not our curse. 
Our brokenness is our strength, not our curse. Properly responded to, it prepares us for greater ministry. Please pay attention to that statement. Properly responded to. When we respond to the wounds and the brokenness of our own lives that God's allowed us to experience, or dare I say, purposely led us through, the point of that is not our demise. It's not to inflict unnecessary pain. It's to prepare us for greater ministry. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I, I hated when I first heard that. I read that in Tozer in Bible college, and that scared the daylights out of me. Because I really wanted to be used by God. I wanted to make a kingdom difference. But that part was really hard to swallow. Because all the scripture pretty much confirms it, if you look. Paul in 2 Corinthians goes through a myriad of things he went through. We, we admire the Apostle Paul, the effectiveness, the breadth, the depth, the permanence of his ministry, the way God has used him. But if you look at that list, list in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 10, how many of us are willing to sign up for the beatings and the stonings and the shipwrecks and the pursuit and the persecution and the being driven out and the mocking and and it goes on and on. It is the secret to greater ministry. It is how we transform weakness into strength. Actually, it's chapter 12. Let's go to it. I'm not paying attention to my notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians is one of Paul's most personally revealing letters. He basically has to make a defense to the Corinthians because there have been people that come in and they've spread false accusations against him. They've undermined his ministry, and he's truly concerned that his ministry is going to be nullified because these people are believing false doctrines and false reports about him. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, he talks about the fact that he was very blessed and privileged in many ways, that how that God balanced that out. He says, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to bloody me and knock me black and blue, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected or made mature in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. If we're going to grow into new creations, we have to understand that God's ways are perfect his wisdom is unsearchable, and we have to come to this point of contented acceptance that what God has allowed is not random, it's not vengeful, it's not malicious, it's totally right for us. It might be different from what God allows your neighbor to go through. We need to be content with what God has ordained for us. Turn over to 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, back a few pages. Our brokenness is our strength and not our curse. 
letter C, it provides a platform for ministry to others. This became a lot more of a change point for me when I realized, you know what? The more God breaks me, the more difficult and painful experiences he allows me to have. He's opening up a new subset of relationships and, and touches to humanity that I can speak into. It's very difficult. It's not impossible because always the truth of God is powerful. It does its work where, where it is sent out. It re- does not return empty. And I took great comfort in that because as a young pastor years ago, I had a pretty pain-free life, quite frankly. And maybe some of the things I'm saying, if you're young, don't really resound quite yet. Just live a few more decades, it will. It, it, life is hard. It, it, it will beat you up. But it was a comfort to know that this is true in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Man, what a way to start. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The the truth is, God has a plan and a, a, a training process for you, and it involves some of those list of hurts that I enumerated in my introduction. Probably won't just be one, unfortunately. And what he wants to do is he wants us to respond and come to him and find healing and rest as he, during his ministry, called out, come all you who are weary and weighed down, I'll give you rest. But the second part is, there's a process. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek, I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus wants us to be comforted, and he allows us to be afflicted so that that is a place we're driven to. And the wonderful thing is, when we respond to that, I can think of several things really flooding my mind where I just said, I surrender. And God said, peace. And I was able to talk to somebody, not out of some theory, but out of, this is real. God really will do this for you. Out of an experience of God's comfort. Our brokenness is our strength. It's not a curse. Christ spoke to this during his ministry. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You've heard me. I, you're going to hear me a lot. Every time I want to say, hey, this is a command of Christ because this is how we get discipled. We obey what he tells us to do. Matthew chapter 9, and this is a little subtle one. I didn't see this early years when we were working on some curriculum until later. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I went and checked it. Yes, that's a Greek imperative. That means something that we're supposed to pay attention to. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says, As Jesus passed from there, there was a man called Matthew sitting in a tax office. He said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened as he was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Let me just stop right there. Do Do you know what happens when... You're compassionate and non-judgmental to people that are broken. 
God entrusts important relationships to you. These people were leftovers. They were the forgotten. They were people that people didn't want to be around. But they came to Jesus. When the Pharisees saw this, he said to his disciples, Why is your teaching, teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? And when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Here's your command. But go and learn what this means. Quote from the Old Testament. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go learn from God his heart. Go learn that God cares more about the disposition of your heart than the perfunctory and precision of your ritual. Have a heart wide open to people that are in need. Verse 35, the same chapter, turn over the page. And Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I mean, what an amazing thing that Jesus didn't just want to preach and get people into heaven. He wanted to win an audience, so he met people where they were in their brokenness. And he healed them, and he fed them, and he spent time with them. Might be a good strategy for evangelism, don't you think? And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like a shepherd without, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You see the connection? Jesus always is connecting that I'm coming to seek and save people, wherever they are, as ready as they are. Years ago, when we were in a church in Catonsville, we, we had to deal with some strategic challenges. We weren't growing. And it wasn't that we weren't out sharing the gospel. We were. We, were, we actually had a team of people that went out every Monday night, and we would follow up with people to visit. We talked to people uh, whose family members had referred us, who were maybe open to hearing the gospel. We sit out in the mall when malls were a thing and just take people aside and start, you know, just caring about them, asking questions and seeing how they were doing, asking to pray with them. But we weren't growing. And, and part of the problem was we found is that the area that we were in at the time, the people were just too comfortable. They were morally fairly upright people. They were church-going people. Matter of fact, we found when we did a survey, this was a problem. There was a lot of unbelievers who had a form of godliness, and they were going to church every Sunday. That's why they weren't coming on, to our church on Sunday, part of the reason, because we made those invitations. And through the work and the direction of the Spirit of God, when the Passion of the Christ came out, we took a huge step of faith. We rented a party room in what used to be the movie co theater, Rundle Mills, and we set up a counseling center for people coming out of the passion of Christ for two weeks. And we met broken people, unchurched people, people who came and said, explain this to me. I've never heard this before. Whew. Man, what a wonderful time. It was supposed to be a temporary thing that we moved our service in there for just three months, turned into five years, because there are people that needed to hear that were broken. 
Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We know this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll maybe notice that maybe this wasn't a parable. Verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? He said, answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, as lawyers sometimes get into parsing the words, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. Notice the sequence here. And by chance, a certain priest was going down at that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, maybe someone who couldn't minister in the temple itself, but they had outside duties. And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, not somebody who was local to Jericho, by the way, somebody who's on a journey in a foreign area, a place where he would probably not be welcomed. That person was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Jesus says to the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Second command on compassion. You go and do the same. You go and do the same. You show compassion. You find the broken people. You work out of your own woundedness so that you have an antenna that's sensitive enough to the other people's pain that is around you. I got to say, I am grateful for the work of God in my life. The first time years ago when I took a spiritual gift test, there was a possibility of 24, up to 24 on each of the spiritual gifts scales. And the first time I took that test, I registered a four in mercy. I say it to my shame. I just didn't have a very soft heart toward people's pain. Like I said, I had to experience much of it. My wife, on the other hand, whose mom died when she was 10, registered 23 out of 24. That's why you marry somebody who's not like you. Makes up for your weaknesses in a big way. It was very awkward being a pastor, having to go do hospital visits, with so little mercy. So I was smart enough to at least take my wife and get out of the way and watch her do beautiful things. Praise God, years later, I took that, and I wasn't a four anymore. I wasn't a 23, but I had improved quite a bit. And I find it is true that when we grow, when we go and we learn that God wants compassion, he'll start and trust people to us. I'm no longer a pastor, but I still minister I'm a property adjuster for an insurance company. And over the last year, I've ministered to customers. 
who had a pipe break right in the middle of the day of their 38-year-old son's funeral. I've had a man who I tried to comfort, who I later found was a believer. I was able to pray with him because there was a terrible fire in his home. His wife was severely burned. She had to jump out of a second-story window to her neighbor's arms. I called him up one day and asked, Mr. Williams, how are things going for you? And he informed me that that day his wife had passed away. The harvest is plentiful. There are people out there that God wants us to find. He wants us to see them. From our passage here in Luke, there are six marks of true compassion. These are steps that help us grow a compassionate heart. Number one, we have to see another's pain. That's step one. We have to see it. We have to see it. Jesus looked and he saw. He perceived in a way, not just on the superficial. And then that led to, we need to feel with another's pain. Isn't that what empathy means? It's to suffer with compassion, to have the same passion with. Number three, we need to move toward the need. What did the Samaritan do? He saw, he had compassion, he moved to that man. Sometimes we get intimidated, don't we? We think we're not prepared. We think we don't know what to say. We, we don't know what to do. And we stop right there and we say, I'll just pray for them. Praying's great. But Jesus has called us to be his eyes and his hands and his feet. And he compels us to go to those people. Letter four or letter D, we need to meet and overmeet the need. Isn't that what the Samaritan did? He met his immediate need, and then he nursed him himself, and then he put money aside for anything future that was yet to happen. The wonderful thing about Supreme Court turning over Roe versus Wade is maybe we'll have more opportunities to save more babies, but that will be more response on our part, won't it? That'd be a wonderful thing. Letter E, move, I forgot the word from, Move from meeting the immediate felt needs to the deeper needs. Move from, from meeting the immediate felt needs to the deeper needs. Doing the first thing is going to win you the hearing. It's going to win you the trust. And don't, don't use this as a gimmick or a ploy. I'm just telling you the process. We looked at what Jesus did. He felt compassion. He knew that people that are hungry and their stomachs are growling are going to have a hard time paying attention to the truth that he's trying to share with them, right? He felt the legitimacy of their felt need of hunger, and he met it. And then it says, and he was teaching them many things after that. It will be amazing. You will find how open people are when they know you care for them. Letter F is an important one. Remember that compassion is costly. It will cost you time. An emotional investment because you will travel those emotions with people if you really care about them. Materially, God may call you to give up something you own and financially. Basically, he's calling us to die to ourselves. Remember that command too? To die to ourselves so that we can experience life indeed. Isn't that what we're talking about? New life? Something that's just not turned over by salvation, but something that's growing and transforming, and we're becoming butterflies and not worms. Have faith 
And this is sometimes a hesitation in it. But that was the hardness of the disciples. What are we supposed to give them? How much you got? Give it to me. I'll multiply it. Be ready for God to do the miraculous thing. Have faith that God will provide what you lack. God provides, but he expects you to serve. He expects you to get the food out. Get the ministry out. I know this is not a cheerful, happy message. I hope it's still an effective message. So I ask the question, where do you stand today? It could be one of these camps. Today you might be hardened. You might be like the disciples. You just just can't feel it. You just don't see it. Christ wants to break your heart with his love and compassion for you. You have to experience it for yourself in order to share it. There may also be a need for repentance because you have responded to your wounds with retaliation, bitterness, or resentment. You might have misjudged what the purposes of God, even in things that happened to you before you were a believer. Things were totally unfair and hurtful, and they left some scars, and you just won't let it go. Here's talking next week in more detail about forgiveness and reconciliation, and that is definitely a very important step. You have to own up to the fact that you have not been the moldable clay on the potter's wheel. You are constantly wanting to get out from under that squeezing and pressure that God has ordained for you, or he wants you to grow to look at things differently. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum. You may be having a hard time being compassionate because you have had a hard time feeling the passion, the compassion of Christ in a personal way. Sometimes we beat ourselves up because of our self-inflicted wounds, the things that we brought on ourselves as consequences, our sinful choices. Sometimes we'd rather wallow in self-pity. What was me? What terrible things have come upon me? Good, good believers and followers of God have experienced that, by the way. People like Elisha, Jonah, you know, God, just let me die. I'm done. And I might say a word as an aside to people with the gift of mercy. This is a trap. If you're not using your gift and expending it to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, you have a tendency to turn your mercy and your pity on yourself. Be cautious of that. Some of you have been listening to lies of Satan, and he's telling you your situation is hopeless, your case, your wounds are too big to heal. I remind you that Jesus loves you unconditionally to the point that he was willing to lay down his life for you when you were nothing. And he's called you to be so much more. You might need to memorize and meditate on Romans 8, 31 to 39, where it starts out, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it talks about all the things we might face, all the hardships, even to the level of being attacked by Satan and his minions. But Paul turns around and he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. We have to be willing to be transformed. How do we come to recognize it? How do we come to recognize the work of God in our life? I've heard a story, looked into this a little bit. This is a golf ball, by the way. Did you know when they when they first created golf balls, the surface was smooth. 
And they found out over time, as they hit it and played with it, it hit the rough patches in the trees, and that would be me, maybe you too. It got scuffed up. And the more it got scuffed up and dented and banged, the better it flew. They might not have known back in the 1800s about how wind drag and loft and all that stuff works, but they do now. And they found out it's, it's important to actually put these dimples on there, these little imperfections or, or seemingly imperfections. Because, and I've heard there's like 500 on there. I didn't count them, but that's kind of crazy. I think there's that many little dots on there. In the same way, your life, brother and sister, is that it often takes scrapes and points of pain in your life to enable you to travel further and straighter in God's work. Number two, back to the, the experiences of the loaves and the fishes. You need to trust God's power to provide all that you need. Yes, you may think, I don't have these resources. I don't have these capacities. I don't have the faith or the courage to pull back the veil of my own hurt and be vulnerable to let somebody know I, I know where they've been. But God may very well call you to that so that you can touch somebody in a very powerful and important way. And finally, if this all just seems too impossible, pray for God to give you the ability to look through his eyes. First, to see yourself as he sees you, and then to help you to see others and where they are. The song I'm going to play, there's a part that says, if I knew my value to you, that your love for me remains despite the foolish things I do, I'd see that your love for me is unshakable and true if I saw my value to you. See, there's no way to impress you, and I wouldn't even try. I'd stop trying to prove I'm worthy, and I'd take off the disguise. If I could look through your eyes, and I would see. See your love for me remains despite the foolish things I do, and I'd see your love for what it is unshakable and true.
Our Father, there may be somebody here, somebody that's online that is hurting this morning. I first call on you to, by your Spirit, minister to that need, that point of brokenness and wound. There may be somebody who this is completely foreign. They don't understand that there's a person that can love them that much. They'd be willing to die in their place. For that person, I pray, Father, you'd open their eyes to see the love of Christ, the sacrifice that he was willing to make to take on the punishment of their sin, that they could go free and have new life in him. And for those of us, Father, who, who want to be used, who want to not waste the hurts that you've ordained for us, help us to cooperate with what work it is that you are trying to accomplish and to transform us and to people who look like you, who see like you, who feel like you, who can be entrusted with the very important ministry of bringing healing to a broken world. We ask these for your namesake, for your glory, in Christ's name.